Uh, we have an extremely mixed South Asian audience, so this is going to be very interesting. I'll start with Samira. Uh, hi, good evening. Uh, my name is Samira Hamidi. I'm from the South Asian Regional Office on the International. I'm from Afghanistan. Thank you very much for the interaction in terms of the failures. But I, I'm very interested to hear your inputs or your views in terms of what can be done. Um, in this era that things are changing, um, uh, the, the, the world power um, like the US, China and other countries are, are shifting their strategies and their policies. The way that people are suffering, we have conflict all around different countries. South Asia, how can we improve the democracy in South Asia? How can we work together? All I, I keep hearing is, um, I'm also part of South Asia, I've been an activist doing all this um, for years, talking about challenges always, but I always think, what are the solutions? How can we improve um, this failed democracy as, as South Asians when our systems like SARC doesn't work? Thank you very much. Let's take uh, two more questions as I think the panel can answer. Any questions? Uh, I am uh, I have a few observations. Uh, Sri Lanka's uh, uh, democracy. Uh, the sense of, of the democratic process is of, of accountable government that is founded by rules. Now, in Sri Lanka's case, the democracy was undermined not by military force as in, as in Pakistan or Bangladesh, but by the parliamentary system itself, which in 1972 dismantled uh, several checks and balances, including the second chamber the right of uh, judicial review of legislation and the right of appeal to the Privy Council. And then later in 1978, when all executive powers are concentrated in the presidency and checks uh, and balances underlined further. Now the challenge that Sri Lanka faces and which some of the other countries may also face is the possibility of a demagogue getting uh, a populist demagogue being elected and then undermining the constitution once again by passing amendments in the 18th amendment uh, that was passed uh, under the previous regime. So, uh, checking that is I think the uh, question that Sri Lankans need to face how to check uh, a parliament uh, uh, that has been captured by Liverpool. I do have a suggestion uh, which was uh, the model of the constitutional council of the upper house in the house of lords which reduced all bills passed uh, proposed in Parliament for constitutionality to ensure that no bill that undermines the Constitution can pass and rejects them. So uh, that's one safeguard. Uh, the second uh, is strengthening the uh, Bill of Rights so that the uh, Constitution sets up, unlike Sinatra circumscribed Bill of Rights, a proper Bill of Rights, uh, including the full ICCPR rights within the Constitution so that the Constitution comes in as a good framework against which it can be checked. Now, there are many other suggestions that, uh, uh, that the others may have and which uh, other countries may have the much experience from. And uh, I'd like to hear Thank you. Thank you very much. There was a, one more question at the back. Yeah, I just want to, uh, we are going to talk about uh, the, the radical Republican activist and Republicanist activist and the liberal democratic activists coming together um, in the last few months 
but then now it's going to then there are the fault lines, you know, I mean, and that's what is going to be the test. I mean, the, the, I, was, I, I believe in popular democracy and not in constitutional democracy. So I would say, you know, the judicial, the, the Supreme Court verdict at the end, in this last crisis, was, uh, came about because the judges were emboldened, I mean, they were empowered by the protests and not sure. vice versa. Sure. Uh, so I think it was the activism that kind of gave a lot of, you know, impetus. So, coming back to my initial thing, <coughs> the, the two are going to be to divide pathways. The, the Republican, uh, uh, what's going to call them, I would call kind of socialist or you know, people who are fighting for free education, free health, and a lot of the other things. And then the constitutionalists who are talking about, you know, protecting, you know, the constitution is supreme. And how do we then take the dialogue forward? And why do we, can we, shall we have an answer this and then I'll start. Yeah. So, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I will uh, respond to the last question and come to the first and second questions later. I think what is important uh, for us to, as a beginning to realize that two strands that had a kind of an informal coalition in October, November and December, uh, that informal coalition is not going to sustain itself very long. I think already you could see the constitutional strand is making a lot of compromises. They were also trying to, you know, manipulate the constitution for their own political agenda and make all kinds of compromises. It's not sustainable in that sense. So then, you see the, uh, the whole activists, you know, we have to take this struggle forward. And I think the first step in that direction is to understand in them the political meaning of that struggle. I can still we haven't had an in-depth discussion on that. You know, we need to really understand, you know, in depth, you know, in order to deepen the democratic struggle in Sri Lanka. That's one. Secondly, I think since the year 2019 is going to be a year of election, it's very, very important that a new broad democratic coalition is formed by political parties. Right? Uh, that's one way to fight. Uh, the, the threat of, you know, nationalist and other populist demagogues and also authoritarian, hard authoritarian options that might be able to save a popular mandate. And I think that the JVP has a very uh, crucial role to play at the TNA. I don't know to what extent they would be, you know, willing to take up this challenge. You know, in India and Sri Lanka and everywhere, single political parties by themselves cannot make a serious transformative political intervention. Look, you know, we have now formed broad coalitions. And coalitions not only among political parties, but also broad coalitions between political parties with commitment to democracy, secularism, and all those values, and also civil society, you know, movements. So in India, another lot of people are now talking about a coalition like that in India. And in a broad coalition to replace the BJP. 
And Sri Lanka too, I think we have to rethink, you know, reconceptualize the idea of coalition, a transformative, you know, coalition. And that takes me to the first and second questions. Uh, and your question uh, about, you know, how to counter the populist onslaught in Sri Lanka. I think that requires a kind of, you know, re-imagining re political strategies for us, you know, available, particularly in this year, the year of 2019. This year is going to be very, very crucial. And for South Asia, to respond to your question, the first question, I think a regime change in New Delhi is fundamentally important for the resuscitation and <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry with this no for the Indian High Commission here. But even then I don't mind because they might give me these other things. Regime change in New Delhi is fundamentally important for the resuscitation of the democratic agenda of the entire South Asia. That's very important. It's very crucial. Well, let's hope if someone is here from the High Commission, they will agree in for greater democracy in India. Uh, but Kanak and Kushi, uh, the questions are broad and they relate to all of uh, South Asia. There is, uh, I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, I think the uh, issue of uh, uh, you know having a coalition is crucial. But if I look at the historical processes of coalitions to oppose authoritarian regimes, which happened during, after the emergency in India and its aftermath. And I see what we have just been through, where there was an attempt in Bangladesh to have a coalition of very disparate groups recently. Uh, and what became up with almost seven votes, seven posts. Uh, you know, you have to not just, uh, the question I want to say is that it's not just having a coalition, but it's also knowing and understanding who you're opposing, how, and how the processes is, and are you capable, are you able to be able to handle it so that you can actually have a proper democratic process in place, or are you going to be used by a system which allows you to play the rules, but you have set the rules in such a way that you can't go anywhere but uh, this direction. So I think you know this is something that we need to look at. But I just respond quickly to the first question, which is uh, what can be done. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I can only just be a dreamer and dream and hope that if we can build, I agree with you that if the regime change happens in India, because India it does uh, uh, influence all yeah. its other countries around it. So that could be a very major factor, but I can dream about if, I don't like the word civil society because it's so broad and it's so, you know, it, uh, it you have different people from different spectrum all across, all over, but if people could, within South Asia itself, learn from each other and learn to work and then build up a strong enough voice so that if something is happening in one country, there's a resonance in all the other countries. That would, I hope, make a difference. Thank you. Picking up exactly where Kushi left off your question, um, 
if you could take the invigorating presentation by Professor Wengler and have it related to Kabul society or Kathmandu society or Dhaka society so that people understand what's happened in Sri Lanka and that energy we felt from him here should be transferred there. That is one way we can learn from each other. But that's not enough. Uh, I feel that there are some experience around South Asia that can help each other. One reason that Nepal remains socially stable amidst incredible political chaos is the fact that Nepal's overall intellectual discourse may lack in depth but has a, has a lot of breadth and is done conducted in the vernacular. It is not that you have an English-speaking um, discourse that is highly sophisticated, worldly-wise, and then there is a Sinhala or a Urdu or a Hindi discourse that does it. It doesn't apply to all of South Asia, I know, but by and large, there is this dichotomy and there is a, two, there is a class system in the discourse. And we need to break through it so that highly nuanced ideas can flow to the public at large, reading in the vernacular, that will change the politics at the ground level. So I think that one could answer your question in many ways, but this is the way I propose to. As far as uh, populist demagogues are concerned, I think uh, all over possibility, not of this traditional, the traditional autocrat or dictator, but the elected parliamentary authoritarian. That is the wave of the future for sure. How to tackle it? Uh, I would say by identifying what are the tools the demagogues use and they use ultra-nationalism, they use the tools of the national security state and they use ultra-populism which can be based on linguistic populism or religious, faith-based, whatever. So I think if we identify those and then go back to challenging them using, and I cannot emphasize it enough, uh, I myself went from English to writing mostly in Nepal on Nepal affairs about 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, so I would say that this is would be the point I would, how I would respond to your point about the populist demagogues. In Sri Lanka you just at least set one demagogue back just a bit. And I'm so happy that I talked about regime change in New Delhi because that doesn't mean that we're not looking into our own societies and the problems that are rife in, in for example, Kathmandu society or Dhaka society. But the idea of a true South Asian discourse is not only be self-critical of your own country and society, but to be to have the right to be self-critical of the other society. Hence, our right to be able to speak about India so openly in this invigorating forum here. Yeah. <coughs> If we can keep the questions quite short and sharp, more people will get a chance to engage. Sal, uh, nervous, you're a journalist. You can ask a pointed question. I need the mic. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, my name is Sal Mahdi and I'm from Bangladesh. Uh, my question might be a little pertinent to Ms. Kushikapi, but I don't answer. So, uh, following up on what uh, Mr. Kalikmani has just said, um, we have seen in Bangladesh's example that there have been movements during the 80s to bring back democracy. Now what has happened to that society with regards to these movements to change the system? Uh, Professor Jadava has explained very well about the tenets and principles of democracy 
and how it has been defined in the South Asian context. But uh, that 80s generation that have moved for democratic process, uh, what happened to them? Are we not sensitized enough? Or what can be done to sensitize them is my question. Let's take one or two more questions. There's a forward here. Uh, I'm Mahalakul. I just have uh, a um, question uh, to Prasadhyaya because I think lots of people have been praising Sri Lanka's democracy as uh, of this movement uh, on the streets in Nepal. Uh, Someone who was part of it, I, I, there were so few of us. <laughs> I really doubt our, our real connection to the majority of the population who were very um, conscious of what was happening. I really did not think that we had much influence on them uh, in terms of uh, how they, uh, in terms of the change or, or anything. We did influence some of them in terms of their thinking. Uh, why I am asking this question is parallelly we have in Sri Lanka, just as we talk about democracy, we have in Sri Lanka the Counter-Terrorism Act, which is being supported by international state governments and the majority of the populace, including the intelligentsia, the civil society, which we know is a draconian and dangerous uh, act. Right? So I, I sometimes wonder how is it that one gets no support any fight against this gets no support. By the restoration of a, of a government actually gets so much of, uh, I mean, gets some support. Namaste. Uh, I'm Anita Parier. I'm from Nepal. But <coughs> okay. democracy is supposed to voice of the voiceless in all Southeastern countries. We are, we have, we have mostly forgotten to voice uh, to think about and talk about the voiceless people. So don't uh, don't uh, is that is that is that is not one uh, like vital point to have forgotten very often even in Nepal I have also, I have made conduct many times in Nepal I was there during the time so very often very actively participating there. So those days, like uh, even the, 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 that time, uh, the democracy was success because that time the civil society and also we said the Maoist was success because they were able to address voice rates, voice, and they supported thinking that they were an individual, which, which is being broke now. But they supported thinking that we might be liberated. So in uh, India now, as you say, like the Delhi has to be changed. Right. That is the that is that is of course very 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 important. And okay. so this uh, I all the conversations that I like Professor you have just put just a little bit about all the like marginalized caste like that. But in, in South Asia, even in Muslim society or Buddhism society or Hindu society, everywhere we have caste and marginalized group. We have totally forgotten about them. And how we can succeed 
you know, actually uh, there always has have been democratic movements. I mean, but what happened to it's not just in the 80s, if you look 2013, if you look really recently at the quota uh, act, uh, you know, the, the, the reorganization of the quota system, and if you look at the safe uh, roads movement, uh, a lot of the movements did take place. Uh, the difference is in the 80s, it was a very politically clear movement against an autocratic dictatorship. Uh, I think what went wrong is that we put a lot of our faith in the political parties and the political parties being able to respond to the needs of the people who were part of the movement who brought them into power through <coughs> voting or because there was a topic uh, of a dictatorship and then uh, systems of voting etc. Uh, the political parties very soon realized that they don't need the people to be in power and what they need to do is learn how to play the game and to play the game with the neighbors and other forces that are much more important to keep them in power. And, and as, as I said in my, when I talked, that the three forces that the uh, uh, governments in power, the political parties try to really uh, work with is uh, military, the uh, business community and the religious uh, community, you know, trying to buy the uh, things through whom they think they can remain in power. If we look at 19, uh, the 2013 movement, as the movement had really the largest uh, you know, strength, apart from the government trying to divide the movement, there was an ambush attack and all the killings uh, and attacks on the bloggers in the name of. Uh, uh, 13th religious sentiments took place, which made a lot of people feel frightened to come into the streets again because if they get attacked. And none of the parties actually addressed that issue. And I think the main problem is that, including the left, because it's really that you don't see the left really playing the role that they used to play previously. So I think uh, we have to start thinking now about getting political parties to start rethinking their own views uh, more than anything else. And I'll just be very briefly on the other points is, uh, uh, you know, counter-terrorism globally is something that has given legitimacy, this is my, or my opinion, to governments to be as, uh, to use it for extrajudicial killing and other kinds of uh, undemocratic uh, roles. I think others will talk about it. And the issue of voiceless people is extremely strong. I think uh, this is a very strong point. Uh, many of us keep talking about all the different uh, people who are uh, left out, to me, uh, who are usually not included, excluded communities. And uh, their issues are raised again and again. But again, if you have political parties and governments in power who do not even, parties who are not in power, who don't even take these up. So it's just left for certain groups to only raise their issues and have seminars, talks, etc., discussions. <coughs> but it doesn't get take, taken up in the way it should so that laws are made in favor of these people.
my response to the gentleman with the grey moustache and to Ms. Uh, Bhaiya uh, is that I guarantee you, well, I can confirm to you that we long after all of us in this room are gone from this planet and from this subcontinent, we'll still, there'll still be the work left to better our democracy. So we have to look at everything on a relative plane, which doesn't mean we become complacent. We should never be satisfied with what we've got. Then we should, but we also look at where, what we have managed. And in that sense, uh, I feel that it's the whole question of half full or half empty. I think there are societies that are on the mend and there will be some slippage and the next step will be to step forward, one back. And that's all I need to say on this. For example, in Nepal, if you look at the constitution, the way the constitution has, with, with its problems, especially on citizens, vis-a-vis -vis citizenship granting to the children of women, um, if you look at uh, the way the constitution has provided space for women at the local government level and for Dalit women in particular, uh, then you say that this provides the opportunity for the politicization of uh, the grassroots in the most positive way possible. I, I would say that just as local government in Nepal is exemplary for the rest of South Asia, has been, now we've got under the constitution a, a more, I would say refined, a more complex local government uh, uh, system with proportional representation at the top, but at the level, at the ground level, what we may call quotas or reservations, but mandated by the constitution. I would say that if we could implement this constitution well, again we would be exemplary for all of South Asia. So it would be very useful for everybody all over to get copies of the constitution of Nepal as translated into English, it can be downloadable, and to see where Nepal messes up, because a lot of the things are in there to move ahead. As far as the other question um, from back over in the back is, talking about counter-terrorism, uh, thankfully Sri Lanka, for Sri Lanka, for now, the era of the white bands is over and may never come back. But in Bangladesh, the era is continuing. The rapid action, the rapid action battalion is uh, an abomination, an institutionalization of abduction, disappearances, torture and death and it's been converted into fine art. So, if we look at Bangladesh for now, Sri Lanka may be doing a little better, but which means that we must tell the Bangladeshis in Dhaka what has happened in Sri Lanka, which is an advance. Uh, I will briefly respond to some of these questions. I think your first question. I think the democracy movements in South Asia will have to really find out ways and means of dealing with the emerging symbiosis between national security scale and neoliberal global capital. So that's a that's real you know, threat to democracy in the years to come. We have not had an adequate discussion on that. I know in India, some of the you know, activists are now beginning to discuss that. That's in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, we have really bring that into the agenda of our discussion. Thanks for raising that issue. And the question of political you know, activism, I am glad that you made that point and I agree with you that we should not overestimate the impact of 
political activism. At the same time, you should not underestimate it either. You see, I am not a political activist anymore. I am a retired activist. <laughs> <laughs> but I am doing now to get inspiration from actually some of the We don't believe you. We don't believe Some of the fine devotees get really inspired by them, you know. And they really, you know, I asked my political imagination, actually this, what I shared with you, is a response to that, you know, the how to articulate, I was inspired by, not by young people who carried or held high the flag of resistance, you know, which I had now, you know. <laughs> but there were the point that there were too few. But of the point that there were too few of them. How? No, not very, yeah, very few. But the point I want to make is that although the very few participated, it's impact. Don't underestimate the impact of it. I know the extent to which people began to talk about it. You know, you know the you know the the Kuktuk drivers, you know, they are our political barometer in Kalapo, right? When we talk about so many people have told me, not knowing who I was, about the Liberty Plaza, you know, liberty that uh, roundabout protest. People are observing, you know, and getting inspired by it. You know, political activism does not require thousands and thousands of people carrying banners like in the old school political mobilization like we saw in the 1960s, 1980s, you know, thousands of people, oh, but the UN leaders in Colombo bringing their people. No, this is, you know, the, the, in, the, in, the, in the age of social media, you know, this message of resistance goes throughout the country. A lot of people were inspired by it. You know, the thing is that that's only the beginning, right? And that's, you know, you have a lot of, you have a lot of, you know, the foundation to build now, you know, build on. So that's very important. The second point is, uh, third point is about uh, what you were raising. You know, one of the problems in South Asian democracy, that's an overdevelopment of what we call political democracy in, in its institutionalized version. You know, the minimalist procedural democracy. But, you know, societal democracy in terms of, you know, democratization of social structures and hierarchies that defined by caste, it has not been really taken seriously in countries like Sri Lanka, Nepal, or even Bangladesh. But in India, there's a very fascinating conversation on that. You know, the whole resistance, the Dalit politics as an autonomous movement of resistance. I think we have to learn a lot from Indian Dalit resistance. You know, we, we need to, that's why, you know, from a South Asian perspective, we have lots to learn from Dalit resistance politics in India. Thank you and Professor Jaydeva, you are very far from retirement. I think all of us here were extremely inspired by your robust activism during the uh, crisis and, uh, and, and what we saw from you. Uh, we'll have to have, I think, just one last round of uh, questions. Uh, can I, can I uh, respond uh, I, I just want to respond to you. Uh, um, you know, one thing, I, this is going to be politically slightly incorrect, but you are my friend, so are most of you. Politically correct or incorrect? Incorrect. incorrect. Uh, see, uh, in this last uh, intervention, I mean, uh, you were very emotionally inspired by what you saw on the street. So are all of us. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, one thing we don't do in these kinds of forums, including today, 
is that all of you uh, were enamored by what what you might call people's action. And in, in, if you are looking at specific things like what happened in Sri Lanka, what happened in Bangladesh, and so on and so forth, uh, those are specific examples of where these things worked. Right? But in my classes, I have representatives of all these countries. And one thing I see is that there is also a lot of popular support for these demagogues. But that is something that in this uh, enthusiasm for people's movements and so on, we, we don't really try to figure out how come those kinds of people also have public support, right? How come when uh, democratic practices are so blatantly violated, when some of these young people go to the streets in Colombo and uh, Kathmandu and Delhi and wherever, there are a lot more who don't. So I agree with you that the numbers may not matter and what matters in the end is whether something actually happens. But uh, the one thing that worries me is that we do not pay enough attention to figure out how these demagogues actually retain power. Because that cannot be done. Look at, uh, this is not about the... I'm not worried about Mahinda Rajapaksha or Narendra Modi or the new Prime Minister of Bangladesh uh, uh, who came back obviously for... See, those kinds of people um, giving a justification for themselves. My concern is about ordinary people who have nothing to benefit from them who also give them justifications. Uh, one, one last question. I think I'm, I have to apologize because I think we're completely out of time. but. There is tea around which people can ask further questions. I will take one last question here. Amar? So just my question is, uh, you talk about the specificity of uh, democracy in South Asia. And there's all, apart from this culture of resistance, there's also this culture of cruelty that you're kind of mentioning, which is very deeply embedded. Uh, and throughout, I think this, what's also unique about South Asian democracy is that it's haunted by violence. Uh, proper military operations, communal riots. Uh, in Pakistan, our violence is disavowed towards Bangladesh or towards Afghanistan. In Bangladesh, they're you know, trying to deal with the trauma of 71. In Nepal, there's a question of transition from that violence. I mean, how do we conceptualize a democratic South Asia that is uh, uh, that's confronting the specter of violence, not only of status violence, but also violence that's embedded in the social uh, uh, body of, of each of these uh, countries. So uh, my question is basically about violence, the place of violence in conceptualizing democracy in South Asia. And absolutely last question from Amina, just to be, I'm not favoring her, I'm favoring regional representation since we <laughs> haven't heard from Maldives. Thank you very much, you know, since it's like South Asia, uh, I thought sitting here from the Maldives, uh, I must at least say something here. Uh, we, we may be very small, uh, and we are, the, I think, the youngest democracy in this region, and we have also gone through this struggle, although it may not be to the magnitude of other countries where you had several killings and things. Uh, but uh, I, I think one of the things that is uh, that it is an ongoing process. So the thing is, is it has to be ongoing. How do we engage the youth since youth? as the largest, I think, segment of, in our population you know, in all these countries. How do we engage them more uh, in this uh, you know, democratic process? I mean, that's my question. I would very briefly 
jump in right there and say that there are so many ways to answer both the questions, but I can try my best coming from the media sphere, respond to it as I already have earlier when I talked about vernacular media. I would say that uh, the way to stop militarization, stop the national security state, stop the demagogue, stop the ultra-populist, ultra-nationalist, would be energizing democracy at the grassroots, localized democracy, which is not a very fashionable thing to say because we love to swim in the metropoles. Uh, but uh, local government, for example, in Nepal, we have now got a new constitution that does not have three tiers. It has got three spheres. What I say in Pali, Tribhuvan, three realms. And these are all supposed to be independent. And that's the government. The constitution mandates them to be independent. So if you can actually move towards implementing that constitution, what comes through to at the other end, this is what I was, I'm getting at, is local government that is representative and energized, provincial government that is representative and energized, and then you have got the federal government. In all of that, you then need all the other tools uh, to work on society, such as media at that level, not um, branches of Kathmandu NGOs, but uh, self-born NGOs in the local level and in the provincial level. Local government to be energized by local civil society which are not part of branches of NGOs from Kathmandu or the center, whichever country. Uh, so I feel that you can use the media track to try to implement uh, this type of <coughs> democracy which can stop the demagogue in his or her track. Actually, uh, it's always been the youth who've been in the leadership of every movement. And that continues to be the case even now. At least what I see, especially in Bangladesh, but everywhere too. The difference is now that before, globally, there were pressures in which made the governments who were oppressive have to listen to what the world opinions were. I think that's a regime that that situation has changed completely. Governments can now feel they can get away with uh, anything. The UN has lost any uh, role whatsoever. So uh, the youth are there, and the question, the situation has become: the youth movements are brutally, not just suppressed, but totally crushed in the most brutal manner possible. Uh, again, it rise, rises, again, it's crushed brutally, but there's no listening of that. And I think that just comes to the question that was raised. There's a culture of complacence now, uh, amongst the middle class especially, and people who could matter, who could write, and self, uh, with what we were talking in the last couple of days, uh, you know, a self, uh, what's the censorship? Uh, going on to save one's own skin, uh, which I think is something that we have to start challenging. Actually, when I was in India, you know, I was a, you know, struck by the fact that the I mean, struck by the Gauraksham, Gauraksham, the Gauraksham phenomenon. You know the. Yeah. The whole, you know, the uh, very, you know, poorest sections of uh, the society, you know, being 